Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Martha Cleveland Innes in this episode. Martha is Professor of Open, Digital and Distance Education at Athabasca University and the epitome of the international scholar in the field. She's a great believer in the power of education and the need for it to be accessible to all. I'm talking with Professor Martha Cleveland Innes, Professor of Open, Digital and Distance Education at Athabasca University. Martha is Editor-in-Chief of the Bilingual Canadian Journal of Learning and Technology and the author of The Guide to Blended Learning, among many other publications. And she's also Visiting Professor of Pedagogy at Mid-Sweden University. Martha, it's wonderful to be talking with you. Thank you. It's a wonderful opportunity. Great. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Brief is difficult because (laughs) (laughs) there's been a lot of decades of contribution. Mm. But, But let me tell my story this way, please. When I began my studies, I had a particular interest in human social behavior, Hmm. particularly at the macro level, large groups, um, with an interest in how it is what happens at the micro level affects those bigger picture events. Hmm. So I focused on, you will see the thread in this as I continue, I focused on concerns about social mobility, status attainment, and life chances. Hmm. Very briefly, to sum it up, how your life evolves in our current state of evolution as human beings depends very much on where you're born, what family you're born into, and then your education. Right. Formally and informally. Well, we can't do much about where it is you're born or the family you're born into. But education is the great leveler, the great developer, the transformative opportunities that that we have in varying degrees in many, many different kinds of ways across the globe. Mm. So my first publication was actually a, a long time ago when returning learners this whole notion of stop in, stop out was unique. And we had adult learners in higher education. I, I wrote an article from the, the, my master's degree data um, called Adult Student Dropdown in Post-Secondary Institutions. That was published in the Review of Higher Education in 1994. And it's, still, it's actually still being cited. It was a strong argument for how it is we need to make sure whoever comes to the table in higher education is treated with what's now a common phrase, Mm. with equity, um, respect for their diversity, and that they are included. From there, I moved to looking at education systems. So out of the more behavior science into education systems, how is it that engagement access and retention then will assist. 
I had a very interesting conversation just in the last week with a colleague of mine who's from India. Mm-hmm. And when I was exploding about the, just the vast numbers of people, he said, let's look at India this way. Not so much how many people are there, but the quality of education as it's currently offered. If we're going to scale it up, let's make sure what we're scaling is of the highest quality possible. Mm. And that that notion that he he presented, and that was actually someone that you've interviewed previously, Dr. Sanjaya Mishra. Yes. Yep. His point was so exceptionally well taken. What he said was, basically, let's look at the quality of what we're doing. And that that's the red thread, effectively, that's gone through my career. Mm. I did slip into the more micro level when I created my doctoral research. And what I wanted to look at is how it is that social and academic interaction affect learners, particularly as it relates to engagement with the experts, what we used to call the experts or our faculty, and how those things overlap. Dr. Randy Garrison was on my committee at the time, and we spent many an hour discussing how it is students are engaged, what role interaction plays, and how that affects uh, someone's results, both as their development as human being and in reference to the actual content learning outcomes. So some... Years later, my next um, most meaningful contribution to the literature was actually I drew in a colleague after I graduated and we wrote an article called Social and Academic Interaction in Higher Education Context and the Effect on Deep Learning. Mm -hmm. Why that was a critical piece of what I was doing is because Randy Garrison, Terry Anderson and Walter Archer we're constructing the community of inquiry framework at that time. So there were many discussions about the relationship of social presence to thinking and cognition and the more academic side of the experience. And in fact, Randy Garrison and I replicated my PhD research and published it in the American Journal of Distance Education. It was called facilitating cognitive presence, which was academic interaction in my previous work, um, in online learning, colon, interaction is not enough. And as we looked in that replicated study at what it was students were doing and how they were developing as deep learners, we identified that the role of the instructor was key. And that interaction with the instructor on both the social and academic side, was critical. Mm. So on we went to um, the development of the community of inquiry. I've been a principal researcher for that model um, since it emerged in the early 2000s. And of course now, in the last six to seven years, I'll argue, it has really come into its own. Did Was there a burst of interest during the pandemic? Of course. But unfortunately, based on the, the requirements of the pandemic and the speed at which students had to transition from in-person to online delivery, 
the community of inquiry was not particularly well used during that time. Yeah. But outside of that particular event, there's been huge amounts of research done on the community of inquiry. And I've been privileged and honored to play a significant role in that. We do have a repository now on community of inquiry research. And if it's something that, um, that you can share, I'm not sure how you like to do that with your interviews, mm. but there is a website and I'll make sure you have access to that link. Uh, the community of inquiry, of course, is now into its uh, second or third decade. Uh, it, it's a very enduring model. Uh, and it looks as though it also has a bit of a bright future. Is it possible for you to maybe give an overview of some of the more recent findings uh, that still point to it as a, a very, very relevant model for us today? Absolutely. And again, I can give you um, uh, some citations that you could put on your website. I'll, uh, I'll quote uh, Bosker on this and say that he has identified that the value of the community of inquiry in the estimation of uh, looking at publications that he did with colleagues is that it's the foundational piece. Mm. It's that there's a lot of discussion and description of the details that have been done. So anything that um, uh, you want to look up based on the theory, would you, you'd, you could look at Boskirk. Of course, Randy Garrison is still writing. There are editorials on the website that I'm going to offer you. Mm. In spite of what Boskirk says, and uh, I course agree that what he says is what leads people to using the community of inquiry is the detailed theoretical premises. Mm. It requires, however, that you identify a pedagogical background. So to attempt to employ the community of inquiry from a behaviorist perspective is not going to be particularly valuable. And I can give you the name of a student that I'm working with who is looking at that issue in particular. Mm -hmm. Her name is Shereya Serene. What she's suggesting is that, in fact, the community of inquiry is a montage, a collage of varying pedagogical premises. And while it's based on experiential learning and social constructivist approaches, there is direct instruction that's involved. So I would keep an eye on what um, Sharia Serene has to say coming up about how it is you can think about the community of inquiry model and the details that are available um, in reference to multiple pedagogical models. Mm. We've also identified that while there's been a great deal of discussion about the theoretical model, with reference to a few other presences as well that have not been added to the base model, but are still important things to look at. One is notions of learning presence, which was identified by Peter Shea from State Universities of New York in Albany. And he's very clearly saying the community of inquiry has to state with greater detail what the role is for the learner. Yeah. We don't disagree with that. However, the model rests itself on a particular role and a presence for the students that's actually carved up into lower levels of detail, and that learning is actually what happens throughout the combination of social, 
cognitive and shared teaching presence. Mm. I also am known for the work that I did with a student, actually, um, Prisca Campbell, who convinced me that we absolutely should call out the model for not attending carefully enough to emotional presence. There was mm -hmm. attention to affective learning, but not enough attention paid to the emotion of making the transition in the first instance to online learning and the emotion that is just part of everyday human experiences, especially where transformation is taking place. So she and I did an extensive study on emotional presence and published it in Arodal, International Review of Research in Open and Distributed Learning. It's called Emotional Presence Learning and Online Learning Environments. Mm. From there, there's been much continued exploration. Four of my students, in fact, have been heavily involved. Uh, Dr. Stefan Stenbaum, Dr. Deb Brudel, and upcoming researchers, Lynn Rabeck and Janine Horlock, are continuing to look at emotional presence, particularly as it affects cognition. There's some incredibly rich themes of research there, and no doubt the community of inquiry is branching out in so many different research directions. Mm -hmm. Is there any consolidation work taking place? Is there synthesis in mind at some stage to uh, once again bring the model together? Yes, of course. What I hope will emerge from the repository is encouragement for systematic reviews of all the research that's, that's coming together. Mm. What we're particularly concerned about, however, particularly post-pandemic, um, is notions of application. How is it that we take these ideas that have been measured for a long time, measured and remeasured, with a variety of different tools, how can we take those and provide support and direction for people to actually apply the model mm. very specifically? So we have a book that will be released at the end of this year on designing online environments based on the community of inquiry. And we have um, the big names. <laughs> the big <laughs> names are represented in that book. Um, Jennifer Richardson, the late Karen Swan, mm. um, Randy Garrison, of course, Norm Vaughn, mm. um, and some others that are new and upcoming to make sure that the applications itself can be evidence-based and directed toward the model with flexible boundaries, right? We want to say, here's how it works. Some of the chapters refer to specific populations. Yep. Um, for example, there's a chapter about applying it in the sciences, where a behaviorist approach is a long-standing requirement. So um, the book itself will start as a, uh, a series one, and we hope that those who are listening, for example, and our researchers in the community of inquiry will consider also publishing any application work they're doing and perhaps even come to the repository, come to us and participate in these application series we hope to be creating. Mm, excellent. Well, I very much look forward to that book being released. So the second question, Martha, is the ideas and themes your work has provided that your sense is still pertinent today. And clearly there's a lot of work underway under the community of inquiry. You also do some work in higher education reform, 
lifelong learning, leadership, online learning and blended learning in general. What are some of the highlights from your publication record that uh, you think people should be reading right now? I, I can see how my work evolved based on the, the calls, particularly from the United Nations Strategic Development Goals and other other places where people began to be concerned about access to education in its broader sense. For example, the International Commission on the Future of Education, which is a subcommittee of UNESCO, has written a wonderful treatment of the kinds of things that we need to do, not only for leadership, changes in infrastructure, and at the more micro level, mm. ways to offer equitable opportunities for diverse populations such that they be included. Yeah. So the EDI movement is a critical one. I want to suggest another acronym and instead call it IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. Mm. The community of inquiry and online forms broadly are offered and certainly have the prestige and the flexibility to say, through these mechanisms, we can offer greater accessibility, not only in terms of geographical accessibility, or perhaps if we can, if we can make sure we pay attention to this financial accessibility, yeah. can it be more financially reasonable to come to online environments than have to move and pay the tuition that's in place-based environments. Um, so we need accessibility at, at that macro level. Can I get in? Can I get to it? Can I get through high school with all the courses I need? Um, are they offered in my remote rural area? And at a second level, is it accessible to me as a learner? Is it accessible based on language, um, based on the materials that are offered, based on the engagement, the competencies that are required? If it is going to be online, what are we doing about digital competence, for example? Yeah. So, so what it is that has moved me into new areas is this whole notion of creating um, a a global education environment that allows digitally accessed lifelong learning for everyone. And that's mm. life-wide as well as lifelong. If the pandemic wasn't anything, it was certainly a major transformation experience for people who had to learn a lot of things mm. about this virus, about how to keep oneself safe, about the the requirements to do that and deal, of course, with all the issues around privacy, freedom, and all of the other things that emerged because of that. There was a developmental process going on for everyone who was involved. That means we need to attend to life-wide and lifelong learning in ways that are pedagogically sound as well as available. Um, in all manners of the word. So what have I done? Um, well, you said them all. I have them written down, but you actually are reading my notes here. <laughs> um, I'm particularly interested in, in leadership. I've actually created a MOOC called 
leading change in teaching and learning for the future of education. Um, I've written about the demographic changes in higher education in particular, but that's, it's not just about higher education. K-12 is important as well. We need new infrastructure support so that that attention to diversity that includes different ages, sort of a hop-on, hop-off kind of yeah. higher education that allows, we at, at the Baskin University allow students as young as 16 years old to join us. Um, and we have people in their 80s, well into their 80s that are, mm-hmm. are graduating from our programs. We need the infrastructure to deal with that kind of diversity as well as all the others, intercultural issues, linguistic issues, education backgrounds, and so on. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, looking at that infrastructure in reference to blended learning, how can we support in-person learning where it's still highly valued while at the same time teach digital competencies through online spaces because those graduates that are going to leave that in-person environment are going to be involved in digital workplaces, digital society, digital economies, and so on. Mm-hmm. We, we need to blend learning in a way that it prepares. It supports, in the first instance, the diverse characteristics of our students and the diverse learning needs and styles, if you will, at the same time preparing our graduates to live in an extraordinarily complex and digital world. Mm. I'm sure you've seen that I've gotten heavily involved in MOOCs. I have a book that just came out with Nathaniel Ostashewski called Participant Experiences in an Inquiry-Based Massive Open Online Course. We actually took the community of inquiry and in the interests of idea, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. Yeah. Um, we offer these MOOCs as a scaled version of the community of inquiry um, to en- everyone in the world. Mm. And this comes through the Commonwealth of Learning in partnership with Athabasca University. And that's an open source book. Yeah. Um, we've also now written a text through uh, the will be published through AU Press, Principles of Blended Learning, Shared Metacognition, and the Community of Inquiry. That's about this blended learning that I'm, I'm advocating for, and that was written by Norm Vaughn, my student Deborah Dow, myself, and Randy Garrison. Mm. And then finally, of course, our, our book on designing online learning environments based on the community of inquiry. So there's so much to do. <laughs> there's so much for us to do. I, I, I can't even start to talk about artificial intelligence mm. right now, but I am participating with some Swedish colleagues um, to look at the community of inquiry in reference to what the so-called artificial intelligence or more standardized robotic sorts of opportunities, self-assessment strategies, for example. And we're going to look at how those kinds of opportunities might fit into the community of inquiry template. Such a wonderful breadth of scholarship and achievement. I I can't help thinking, too, there's a continuity between the heart of Charles Wedemeyer and what he envisaged for education and the work you're doing now. Is is that a, a deliberate connection? 
for, for you? Well, um, yes. I have to say uh, honestly that there is there are so many things that we're working on simultaneously that it's it's my students in particular that are affected by that work. And so by default, that affects me as well. I think that one of the things we're going to have to deal with is the information explosion and the number of people that are now participating in the space and having their voices heard. And to your point, what do we do about that sort of macro approach to the literature and looking at systematic reviews in ways that are not just quantitative because not all work is quantitative in nature. And how do we pull these things together into systematic holes so that we can actually apply it? Martha, uh, your observations about online learning and education at the present time, as, as you pointed out, the last few years have been quite disruptive, but also um, a lot of people now are quite comfortable in teaching and learning via Zoom or Teams. A lot has changed over the last few years. Where do you think we're at at the moment and where do you think we ought to go? Well, I think that the field of teaching and learning in particular has and continues to transform um, that was happening before the pandemic, uh, affected by changing societies and the technology integration. It's an evolution of distance education. And so it is still viewed by many as a poor quality of education. Mm. And my experience um, post-pandemic, of course, we were overwhelmed yeah. with requests for information and requests to speak and do workshops and so on, sort of before, during, and shortly after the pandemic. But as you have probably noticed yourself, there's a great deal of research coming out. As the editor of a Canadian journal in particular, we still get a lot of international uh, research, and there's a great deal of work that's been done studying online learning during the pandemic. Mm. What, what's emerging from my perspective are two camps. One are groups that, and I have worked with a few of them where they've just said, we tried it, it doesn't work for our students in our context. We're not going there. Mm. Um, it's still so often seen as a second class option, particularly based on the experience of the pandemic. There is another camp, though, that's coming forward. And some of them were once very critical of distance learning. And what they're now saying is, look, because we are now a global society, because we have to consider our travel arrangements and what that's doing to the climate, because we'll likely have future disasters, if not pandemics, uh, catastrophic weather events. So there's also a camp saying, okay, we do need to prepare our students to be involved in more accessible ways should something else happen and into the future. Mm. So what do I think is going to happen? If you take a look at what the International Commission has said about the future of education, it will be the digital environment that helps us get to know each other better. It will be through those digital environments. 
we still have a digital divide. Mm. I mean, it's such an old term, but one that's still critical. So I have many a time gone back to the affordances of generation one, two, and three of distance education to support people who are trying to reach out to students who can't get to them to support them. So online learning will continue to participate in a transforming higher education space alongside alongside continued distance education where it's required in its earlier forms mm. and alongside blended environments where if you can go in person, we're still mammals and we have a magnetic and electrical energy that passes between us. Mm. And that being in person is still is still something that's desired by many. And um, again, we could, you'd have to interview someone else, of course, to speak more knowledgeably about this, but there are, we know some mental health issues mm. that occur when we are isolated as humans. So the blended learning is going to continue to be a driving force where we get some in-person, uh, how much. There's a great um, scholar from York University in Canada who looks at the combinations of blended learning, how much online is enough and how much in-person do we need for the best contribution depending on disciplines and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, where's it going to go? I think the sky's the limit, but I don't think we'll ever not have in-person education spaces mm. or the understanding of learning as it plays a role in our everyday life in our work life when we're actually not formally engaged in some sort of specified accredited program, but in fact are learning as a lifestyle. Hmm. And that online will become an increasingly bigger part of self-regulated, um, self-determined learning for people. And online will be part of that as well. Yeah, the, the phrase that springs to mind is a, a constantly changing mosaic of delivery options mm -hmm. based on the context of the learner, based on the subject, based on the situation. Woven into beautifully created tapestries of pedagogical delivery. Yeah. Uh, so, Martha, the research you'd most like to see, no doubt this is actually quite a hard question given the breadth of research that you've been responsible for and the perspective that you have. But what would the perfect journal article that you'd like to read at the moment look like? Well, I have one I'd like to recommend because it, it's exceptionally well done. And it's um, by Florence Martin mm. and colleagues. She did a systematic review of research on online teaching and learning that I've rested on. Mm. Um, it's published in Computers and Education. And what she and her colleagues found is that we... We need to understand better a couple of things. Of course, equity and accessibility. That's something that's already in the narrative and getting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But the things that, and, and she feels is still not quite enough. Um, so we can, I think we will get to that. But somebody has to take more interest in the cost-benefit trade-offs mm -hmm. between online and in-person learning and what that means in individual context. Yeah. We have to look at institutional and administrative factors. There's great work that was done in the transformation to e-learning 
through Swedish researchers, and they've identified critical administrative factors that need to to contribute. And then finally, the globalization and cross-cultural aspects. We have some wonderful data that we hope to pull together and publish on the MOOCs that we've offered because at one time, as we looked at our global data, we had hit 180 of 192 countries currently at that time registered in the world. So those globalization and cross-cultural aspects, they need more attention. In terms of um, specific pedagogy, to uh, online environments, as I said, uh, looking at the assumptions made and the beliefs around what really counts in learning is a critical piece. If we are going to continue to measure based on inquiry-based methods, communal social learning methods, we absolutely need to continue to look at the model that's been most popular and Uh, most well-formulated, that's the community of inquiry. But if we hit all the imperatives, and do we know about the overlaps? Do we know enough about those overlaps? How do you link social presence, which is not private, it's personal engagement with more um, academic cognitive space? How does that overlap? How does it coexist? We need increasing numbers of validated tools that are context specific. Mm. And then finally, also for us, we want to make sure if we're going to talk about social presence and shared teaching presence, how is that affected in cultures, for example, where there's still a great deal of social distance between instructors and learners? And how can we encourage that? And then finally, Randy Garrison would not forgive me if I didn't say We need to know more about shared metacognition. Mm. There is a a wonderful theory called deliberative dialogue as opposed to debates. Mm -hmm. And the community of inquiry is replete with that, although they don't talk about it. If you, you look up deliberative dialogue, it encourages discussion like the one we're having here that doesn't argue about what's best from individual perspectives, but rather, how do we bring our perspectives together, deliberate around that, and then, as I said earlier, and I'm known to say often, we're going to weave a tapestry of understanding together, and that's through shared metacognition, which is um, Randy Garrison's current uh, research process, his program. Mm-hmm. Some fascinating research possibilities there. Um, no doubt another lifetime could be used up exploring those different avenues. Martha, to finish, uh, two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. There are so many people out there doing such great work that I'd love to highlight. Mm. I, I do want to shine some light on Dr. Florence Martin. Yeah. Um, she's at the University of North Carolina, and she's she has an incredible publication record and is also very passionate about high-quality online learning. Um, and so I'm watching her. I'm certainly making sure that in the reading that I do every day, um, that I make sure I keep track of her. 
I also want to, and I, I have asked her, uh, and she's happy to speak with you if you decide. You want to interview her. And the second person is Dr. Stefan Stenbaum, who graduated fairly recently and is already an associate professor. Mm. He works at the Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden, and they have made a significant commitment to um, constructing digital infrastructure, and he's responsible for that. Um, because he was my student, of course, we're still engaged in a significant way, but he has um, a well-defined perspective on that micro-macro link. How do we take what we're learning about what has to happen at the micro level and what we need to make it accessible, inclusive, diverse, uh, for diverse people um, in equitable ways? And how do we how do we lead and create structure and function in our institutions, both K to 12? He's both an engineer and a K to 12 teacher. Ah. How is it that we create that infrastructure and then lead people into that infrastructure to, um, to create idea type, ideal type education for all who come to the table? Mm -hmm. Can I also just put a plug in? for a book that came out called Female Pioneers in Distance Education. Two of yes. our former Athabasca students um, created this text. It identifies work that was done sort of behind the scenes by women um, mm. uh, that they then called Female Pioneers in Distance Education. And to highlight that, um, yeah, I hope your interviews continue to include um, the increasing numbers of women who are involved in our field and making a, a great contribution. Mm, absolutely, Martha. Yeah. Martha, you're the very definition of a leader and legend of online learning. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, valuable work uh, that continues to inspire others and be cited uh, prolifically. Thank you so much for participating in the podcast. You're so welcome. Thank you for including me. Oh, thank you. You can learn more about Martha and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.